Morning. Uh, you know, seeing so many back in the church again is, is such a joy. Um, I'll be glad when it's full like it was before COVID. Uh, God is doing his work in this church. I truly believe that. Uh, we are blessed, uh, especially blessed by the men in this church. Um, a lot of other churches you go to and you look around and it's mostly women, very few men. In this church, we have a lot of men, godly men, men that could stand in this pulpit and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are truly blessed here. And we are blessed especially with our pastor. Uh, we miss him. Um, we hope he's having a great time and reading a lot of good things. Um, but uh, I look forward to see him back in this pulpit. Uh, being in this pulpit, is, as uh, Steve has said, is, uh, it's a very important, very sacred um, duty to be called to, to preach. Uh, I am unworthy in all ways of that um, honor. Uh, everything that I say, I give to the Lord to make sacred. Um, I, I'm a very uh, weak and um, servant. I think all of us are. The scripture says that um, we are to love the Lord our God with all our strength and all our mind and everything and our um, neighbor as ourselves. And I would uh, be pretty safe to say that there is no one in this building that has kept that. And believe me, I haven't. So I ask the Lord now in prayer to put his words in my mouth, to keep me from saying anything that would lead anyone astray, to be faithful to the word of God and nothing else. Lord, open the hearts and the minds of those who sit in these pews this morning. Uh, may it be your voice they hear and not mine. May you be glorified in what is preached. Uh, may I disappear and may Christ appear so that it's he and he alone who is heard in this place at this time. And I pray that in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the triune God who leads us all. Amen. When Bruce asked me to uh, preach, I was surprised. We have such great preachers in this church that can stand and do the word, do it justice. I had just finished reading a little book 
And I must say, that little book um, really gave me what I am going to speak on this morning. The book was written by a young lady, um, a very talented young lady that comes from a very godly family. And um, the book is what's known as a dystopian uh, novel. Uh, that's the opposite of a utopian. The utopian is everything good, dystopian is everything bad. And um, when I spoke to her um, about the book, uh, I said, you know, that is really our world, the world we live in, in this day and age. And uh, so I titled this, The Light and the Darkness. I asked uh, Troy to read both of those because when you hear them together, you see how um, John has taken Genesis and brought it from the Old Testament into the New Testament. How similar those two passages are. And they both speak about something. And that something is the light. The light. In Genesis, um, <clears throat> you see um, darkness, no light. And you see the Father speaking light into existence when there were no bodies of light yet created. Where did that light come from? What was that light? It wasn't the sun. It wasn't the moon. It wasn't the stars. It was the second person of the Trinity. It was Jesus Christ. He is the light. You know, how often do we think about light and dark? Probably not much. If we're honest, the sun comes up in the morning, it gets dark at night. It's just how God designed it. On the other hand, our ancient ancestors had many stories and legends about the sun and where it went at night. They had no idea where the sun went. And there are so many uh, ancient religions that worshiped the sun and prayed to the sun so the sun would come back. The Old Testament tells us exactly how the earth was made and how it all works in Genesis. But we as believers in Christ understand that another kind of darkness exists. Not the night caused by the rotation of the planet Earth. The darkness is supernatural darkness caused by the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Temporarily, we are in that darkness. 
there will be an end. But now we are in the darkness. The darkness exists. And it happened in the garden. It happened... happened because of Satan. Satan is our enemy. Satan is our adversary. When Adam and Eve fell and the darkness came, he, Satan, was given dominion in this world. And some of his titles the prince of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, the adversary, the deceiver. He's the fallen angel, Lucifer, the shining one, the most beautiful of all the angels who wanted to to be God. He battled with the archangel Michael. He lost the battle and was cast down with a third of the angels that were on his side. It was Satan in the garden who in the form of a talking serpent said to Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Twisting God's word and bringing the veracity of God into question. This act and the ungrateful and treacherous actions of Adam and Eve brought the darkness of sin, death, and hell to earth. The fall of our first parents caused a bifurcation, a split, a divide of the entire human race into two eternally incompatible groups, those who belong to God and those who belong to Satan. The children of light and the children of darkness. The choice decides our eternal life, heaven or hell, ultimate joy or perpetual despair, life with the God of all things or existence with Satan, the fallen angels, and every sinner that has ever turned their back to the gospel. Darkness indeed. What is the darkness that John writes about in this book? It is simply the sin in, this, in the world due to the sin of Adam and, and every other and the other sins added to the original sin by each new child born. We look at these precious little bundles of cuteness. I mean, I, Ginny and I have two great granddaughters, and, and they're just the light of my life and her life, all right? But we look at them without remembering that each child is infected from their first uh, breath with a sinful nature inherited from Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, Genesis chapter 3, verses 15 to 19, tells us precisely the cause of the miasma, the dark mist 
that produces a hiding place where their sin can be hidden for other humans, but not from God. The curses of Genesis 3 are what makes the darkness so pervasive and that makes reaching those who, as Jesus tells us, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And we see the garden. You have to go back to the garden. You have to see what happened there because that colors everything. Right. After God came and, and said to Adam, where are you, Adam? And Adam was hiding with Eve, and we know why. But he said, first to the serpent, he said, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you, above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And then in that curse, God puts the answer. And that is, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between you and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel and you shall bru- uh, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The curse itself contains the solution of the, in the plan of salvation. Someone, a, a very prominent preacher, has said that we must be unhitched from the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament. Just go right to um, the resurrection, and you, that's how you save people. How can you do that if you don't understand what you're being saved from? He says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And put a note, this curse explains the inability of relationships in a fallen world. And to Adam and the creation as the whole, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it, eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. For you. And you shall eat plants by the sweat of your front of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's the curse. That's what brought the darkness. That's what we face every single day. C.S. Lewis, in the fifth book of the Narnia season, season, Series. I think maybe I should slow down a little. Uh, it's uh, called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Um, it's about uh, 
this, I think, helps understand what I'm trying to say about darkness. It says, about nine that morning, very suddenly, it was so close that they could see that it was not land at all, not, nor even, in the ordinary sense, a mist. It was dark, a darkness. It is rather hard to describe, but you'll see what it's like if you imagine yourself looking down the mouth of a railway tunnel, a tunnel either so long or so twisty that you cannot see the light at the far end. And you know what it would be like. For a few feet, you would see the rails and the sleepers and the gravel in broad daylight. Then there would come a place where they were in twilight. And then, pretty suddenly, but of course without a sharp dividing line, they would vanish altogether into smooth, solid blackness. It was just so here. For a few feet in front of their bows, they could see the swell of the bright greenish-blue water. Beyond that, they could see the water looking pale gray, as if it were looking, it looks late in the evening. But beyond that again, utter blackness, as if they had come to the edge of moonless and a moonless and starless night. That's the kind of blackness that we're in. We can't see it, of course. We think that the world is bright and shiny. We think that, that uh, everything is going fine. We know it isn't. But we're surrounded by that darkness, that supernatural darkness. And within that moonless and starless night lays an evil of immense and eternal proportions. And such is the world we live in, a world that is in the lap of the porneron. That's the last word in the Lord's Prayer that we say, porneron in Greek. We say, keep us from evil. The Greek is translated, keep us from the evil one. The evil one. The evil one. If we left, if we were left to the situation at this point, with no rescuer in this world or the next, we would, as Paul the apostle tells us, if in Christ, um, if in Christ we have hope in this life alone, we are of all people made most to be pitied. That's First Colossians. Um, that's Colossians. No, it's not. Oh boy, I'll be all right. First Corinthians, fifteen nineteen. But we do have help. The God Man Jesus Christ. John, the author of the fourth gospel, intentionally starts his text using the very words that Moses uses to begin the book of Genesis and at the very same time, the beginning of creation. With the Trinity surrounding the chaos of the unformed creation, 
And the first thing that is created is light before the great light of the sun or the lesser light of the moon or the stars are formed. This event shows that the Son of God, called by the Apostle John the Word, is the life and light of all things. The darkness of sin cannot overcome, cannot overcome the light of the world. D.A. Carson says this about the incarnate Son. Life and light are almost universal religious symbols. In John's usage, they are not sentimental props, but ways of focusing on the excellencies of the word. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Many commentators draw attention to the formal parallel in chapter 5, verse 26 of John's gospel. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the life to the Son, life to the Son himself. The relationship between God and the Word in the prologue is identical with the relationship between the Father and the Son in the rest of the gospel. Both chapter 1, verse 4, and uh, chapter 5, verse 26 insists that the Word slash Son shares the self-existing life of God. Later on, Jesus claims that he is both the light of the world, that's in John chapter 8, verse 12, and John chapter 9, verse 5, and the life, verses chapter 11, verse 25, and chapter 14, verse 6. Both wisdom and Torah are commonly associated with life and light in the Jewish sources. John ties them in with Christ, the Word. The dark plagues of secularism and materialism surrounds us with the inability to understand the world as it has been understood for millenniums. The failure to distinguish the differences between man and women, the proud perversion of the sexual revolution, and the abomination of unfettered abortion rips our culture to pieces. Along with corruption, we have violent crime, sex trafficking, drug addiction, liquor addiction, and more. Greed runs runs rampant, with those with political power spending trillions of dollars the country does not have. A quote from Albert Moeller says this, it is the money of our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren because this money is being borrowed by a government in no ways that will never be paid, paid back, if ever paid back during our lifetimes. We are saddling future generations with our debt rather than leaving future generations with an inheritance. That is morally wrong any way you look at it, close quote. After the battles of the 1960s and 1970s for civil rights, we find ourselves focused on racism, on hatred of each other because of the color of our skin, as as if that era had never existed. We have a republic so divided on so many problems, none of them trivial or petty. Satan, in my opinion, 
has been given the authority to increase the darkness. Churches that once preached the gospel faithfully are now part of the problem. So many have become part of liberal, non-biblical, ineffective organizations. They do not worry about the curtailment of religious freedom because they belong to those who do not belong to Christ. In his sermon, How to Pray in a Pagan World, John MacArthur said this, Jesus instructs us here to confront the world of paganism with something that seems of very little interest to the contemporary evangelical church, and that is to confront paganism with prayer. Prayer is not a placebo, not a band-aid placed on a mortal wound. Prayer is the power of the triune God brought to bear against the darkness by the King of Heaven and His Christ. Prayer, along with the single offensive weapon of the armor of God, the soul of the Spirit, God's holy word, the darkness is defeated when the army of Christ wields these weapons. Do not be confused by the light and darkness. They are not equal. The light is substantial. The darkness is merely the absence of light. If you enter a room with no windows and no illumination of any type and light a single match in said room, you will be amazed at the light that small incendiary will produce. Such is the power of the light of Christ in the heart of a sinner who comes to know Christ. Carson, Carson again on the light. The verb fortise may have its pr primary lexical meaning to shed light upon or to make visible or to bring to light. Inner illumination is not in view, whether of general revelation or of the special light that attends salvation. What is at stake, rather, is the objective revelation, the light that comes into the world with the incarnation of the word, the envision of the true light. It shines on every man and divides the race. Those who hate the light respond as the world does. They flee lest their deeds should be exposed by this light. But some receive his revelation and thereby testify that their deeds have been done through God. In John's gospel, it is repeatedly the case that the light shines on all and forces a distinction. This light shines upon every man, whether he sees it or not. John writes, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And this, which is verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God.
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's the problem. What do we do? Okay. When I came to the end of this, I knew that it's going back to fundamentals. Okay. I wrote, now that we have ascertained the problems, we must state the solution. This solution will be accomplished by three applications offered to the individual Christian and the corporate body of Christ. First of all, prayer must become a requisite duty for each and every biblical believer and Bible-teaching church in our country. We do not pray. Ask any pastor, any pastor, does your church, is your church a praying church? Do you have special times of prayer? Do you bring people together for prayer? And the answer most likely will be no. My own, I battle with my own prayer life. Because when you go into the closet, when you go in and talk to him, the adversary hates it. Like I said, prayer is not a placebo. Prayer, prayer actually works because it was given to us by Almighty God. Why are we so reticent? Why are we so slow to go to our knees? We have to start praying. And we have to start praying for those who are in the fog, the darkness. We, and all those things I read about what's going on in our country, they can, be, they can be changed by one thing, Jesus Christ. We don't need government programs. We don't need uh, special things. We need to get back to prayer. It's a necessity, and believe me, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. We must get back to him. Young people, do you pray? Young adults, do you pray? Older people, do you pray? Is it something you do consistently? I would have to answer no. For me, but I go back again, and I go back again, and I go back again. The second, um, in, uh, let me just read this quickly. This model of prayer is given in two forms, the Lord's Prayer. Um, the difference of form shows the exactness of similarity in words, and it's not essential. The prayer includes adoration, supplication for the kingdom, for personal needs, for forgiveness, for dis deliverance, for temptation, and the ascription of glory. It, as, it 
is at once individual and universal. It sets the recognition of divine things first and yet clearly asserts the ethical and social relationship in life. What that's saying is take the Lord's, the Lord's Prayer and dissect it. Look at how it's set up. Everything in there follows from the first part of it. it we say it as a prayer. We say it, it wrote. That's fine. If that's all you can do, that's fine. But it's broken down. It starts with God and ends with us. It starts with God and ends with us. Okay. We have a doctrine, a Christian doctrine of prayer that men should pray is taken for granted. Its sacredness is involved in the command for privacy. It's importunity, uh, it's necessary conditions of humility, absence of self-righteousness. You see, when you pray and you're praying for others, and always pray for others first, they need it, especially those that don't know Christ. The second thing is discipleship and evangelism. Um, I read, uh, I won't read the whole thing here, but it was just a, a short essay. Um, and the essay was called The Skim Milk Gospel of, the che- of Cheap Grace. And it had to do with a man uh, named uh, Bonhoeffer, who was a pastor in Germany um, during the time of the Nazis. Um, and he talked about cheap grace, grace that doesn't cost you anything. And this young man who wrote this uh, says that, uh, he says, I was and am convinced that many evangelicals in the USA today are in peril of just that kind of power trip seduction that confuses kingdom and culture, nature and faith and blinding church going. Germans to the false prophets of the Third Reich who did all sorts of things in the name of Jesus while calling other people evildoers. Bonhoeffer saw the church, his church, the church of his day, bowing its knee to cheap grace. If being a Christian doesn't cost us something, it, then it isn't being a Christian. What did Jesus say? He says, if you want to be my disciple, just go to church once a week, read your Bible once in a while, and that's fine. Is that what it says? If you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, which means to die for Christ, and follow me. That's what Jesus said. That's what we're called to. And we have to teach from, from um, infant school downstairs, the kids that are downstairs, all the way to us with white hair, exactly what the gospel is and exactly how you live the Christian life. And that means doctrine. That means not only knowing what you believe, but why you believe it. And I ended... It's not bad. Um, 
I ended with the last thing, which is evangelism. You know, the last couple of years before COVID, um, I had a, a booth out, Crazy Days. And I put it out to the church for people to come just to talk to people. I got a few. In a church, really, in a church of, what, 300 people? I got a few to come and just talk to people. Just, you know, we, I, we had books to give out. We had tracks. We had water. We tried anything, right, to get people to come. I couldn't get many. You know, I mean, it was a weekend. It just, evangelism, I think a lot of Christians still think it's the job of somebody that's ordained to go out and do that and preach. It isn't. It isn't. Uh, Matthew didn't, you know, Matthew didn't write that, you know, go into all the world, uh, just you guys who have, uh, you know, seminary degrees. No, he didn't say that. He said, you go. You go. You go. You go. I don't know why I have been so so nervous uh, today. This was a very difficult thing for me to put together. Um, usually, I'm a very up guy, you know, very happy. Uh, I also have a dark side, like everybody, um, because uh, even though I am saved, um, you know, someone said you're justified but still a sinner. And anybody that says that Christians don't sin is already sinning himself because he's lying. So, I, 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 like I say, I don't know why I was so nervous. I'm not usually that way, but there was something about this and bringing this to you because I love this church. I love the people in this church. I think the people in this church are striving for Christ, but there's so much more to do. There's so much more to do. We are surrounded. When we leave this place and walk out that front door, that's the mission field. That's the mission field. The people that walk around, the people we see in Hannaford's, you know. I was so impressed with Ken Nenfeld. That man could bring someone to Christ standing in line at the at the road, at the uh, when, you know, where you get your license. He, he was just, he, it came out of him. I don't have that, I, you know, but I, I push it and try to get to talk to people. He, he, with him, it was so God-given. I, I miss him. I think this church misses him and, and Adele. You know, but we need to move. We need to move forward. You know, last week you had a wake-up, and I had a wake-up from a man who is so passionate about being a Christian. If, I could, if we could get half of the people that are sitting here as passionate as Steve, we could take this town for Jesus. We could. You know, and I'm not, I'm not saying it, to, you know, because I'm his friend. I'm saying it because he impresses me with what and I am not doing than I need to hear. Oh, okay. 
I hate it when the angels <laughs> do that. You know, we were talking before I got up here and someone said, oh, it was, <clears throat> where is he? Oh, that doesn't matter. Um, it, uh, you know, how long are you going to talk? Yeah. Yeah, I, sa I said when, it, you know, I'm a Baptist. That's when I got saved, I, I became a Baptist. And uh, it was when a Baptist uh, minister takes off his watch and lays it on the, on the pulpit, what does that mean? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> so thank you for being so um, attent to what I've tried to say. Um, it, it's, the, it's the cry of my heart. It's the cry of my heart. I still have so many relatives who don't know Christ, who are still going to the Catholic Church, who still thinking that church is going to save them. And I can't get them to come. We're surrounded. We're across the street. Those people, one of them is a, a child of my, one of my cousins that goes over there. They're nice people that are going to hell with a smile. We've got, we've got the answer. Let's give it. Let's end in prayer here. Almighty Father,